All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right. I'm going to warn everybody right up front. This one is going to be a difficult topic. It is, um, well, let's just say this, the, the topic that we're discussing today and why it's important is necessary for you to understand, especially as a parent, but it's not exactly child-friendly. So if this is something that you are watching uh, with your kids there or small children at home, this may be one that um, you want to learn from it and maybe explain some, some rules and guidelines for your kids later. Uh, but we're going to go over some pretty disturbing topics today because they have to be gone over. They have to be explained because it, it goes into explaining kind of the larger ideology that we're seeing right now. And conservatives and uh, liberty-minded people and Christians and other religious people have gotten in trouble for using this word grooming and uh, allegedly using it inappropriately. But we're going to talk today about what it actually means. And we're also going to distinguish between grooming of a sexual nature and grooming of an ideological nature, because there are differences. And it's important for us to understand this when we are debating with people who look at us like we're crazy when we say something looks like grooming style behavior. So we're going to discuss both and we're going to equip you with things that you need to know about how predators use this. But we're also going to discuss a much larger conversation about the ideological grooming that is taking place and it is largely being directed at your children, whether you like it or not. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Today, we would love to have your participation in the show. If you would like to ask a question anywhere that you're watching this stream, in the first part of your comment, put question, then propose your question, and that way we can notice it very easily. If you haven't already, head down to the link in the description and join our community chat. We would love to get to know you there and have a conversation about this topic after the show. All right. I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. With me is my beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. And then we have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hey. And then, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Let's get right into it. Okay. Well, the first thing that we're going to talk about, and we, we have a clip here from the uh, Anti-Defamation League, uh, which is interesting because over time it feels like um, they... they they approach defamation from a, a very particular political persuasion. Um, and, and lo and behold, it, it seems to be left-wing oriented. Uh, but they have an article called, What is Grooming? The Truth Behind the Dangerous Bigoted Lie Targeting the LGBTQ Plus Community. So as you can imagine, this is the idea of making a distinction between grooming in the sense that somebody is grooming your child for sexual exploitation. 
And what they're saying is to throw everybody into this category of, of grooming is wrong and it's anti-LGBTQ and to suggest that anybody that wants to have certain conversations with your child or thinks certain conversations would be appropriate in school is therefore grooming them for, for um, sexual exploitation it is wrong and bigoted. Right, that that's the suggestion. Now, is it possible for somebody to make a bigoted claim by calling someone or inappropriately describing someone as a groomer in the sense that they're trying to sexually exploit children? Sure, you could potentially do that. Uh, but it's it's interesting. Let's go to the next article, and this is from uh, Politifact, of course that that you know just arbiter of of all things true. And uh, scroll up a little bit. Why it's not grooming? What research says about gender and sexuality studies, sexuality in schools? And this article kind of goes through the larger discussion on why sex education and things of that nature, and essentially exposing children to different concepts or lifestyles within their the, within their school, is actually appropriate and necessary. Because after all, research uh, says that that is the case. Let's go to the third one here. Why so many conservatives from 538, why so many conservatives are talking about grooming all of a sudden? Go ahead and scroll down on this one. This is from 2022. I love the angle that every single one of these oh, things it's, go. It's always, it's always. Um, grooming has become the most recent scare tactic of choice for the right. Fox News host Laura Ingram included a segment on her show last month where she claimed public schools have become grooming centers where sexual brainwashing takes place. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene recently tweeted that the Democrats are the party of grooming and transitioning children. Last week, One America News hosted uh, General Rayon, even called President Joe Biden the groomer-in-chief. For the unfamiliar, grooming is a term typically reserved to describe the type of behavior that child sex abusers use to coerce potential victims without being caught. But now some Republicans are using it against any Democrat or company who disagrees with them on certain policy issues. First of all, I find it fascinating that the left is super upset about somebody using an overgeneralized term in order to demonize their opponents. Since I, last time I checked, any time a Republican disagrees with a Democrat, they're a racist, they're a sexist, they're a bigot. Even in this article, there's no attempt to understand or to differentiate between different styles of grooming. Right? It's just Republicans are saying this because they mean this. Oh, oh, so like an over, overly generalized comment in order to demonize your opponents without actually considering what they might be saying or what their concerns might be? The tone is hilarious because yeah. every single, like 538 especially like kind of, you know, takes the cake on this one because no, notice how the tone is almost like leading from obviously our wise and intelligent readers know that this is all BS. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to give you the inside scoop into what the right is really doing. Like the people at 538 have any freaking clue what anybody on the right thinks about anything in America. But I, I, it's just, it's so fascinating to me how the the approach that, that like these different outlets take just blatantly, or, or, or taking an anti-conservative, pro-left-wing approach as the default. Like, yeah, they, they, this is, these are not editorials. This is the you see this with Washington Post. You see this. No, this is supposed to be informing. This is informing. Hey, we're letting you know that this is what these stupid Republicans, these stupid bigoted Republicans, are doing. It's the same story over and over and over again. We've we've covered many of these on this podcast before, where it's like the the cycle starts with. Oh, look at what these, you know, stupid dinosaur, you know, idiot right wing nut jobs are talking about. And then eventually something will come out 
that will reveal that what these stupid idiot right wing nut jobs they're talking about is actually true. Mm-hmm. Oh, and but then, that's when they release the article saying, and you're a bigot because you don't like it. Yeah. Well, actually, I I, I I got it out of order, right? Because technically it starts with this isn't happening, and then it's this isn't happening, and it's and it's good that it's happening, yeah. even though apparently you're supposed yeah, to this, believe this the cognitive this dissonance that it's not. This isn't happening, and we're happy that it is. Like, this is what we get all the times. And now here's what I will say, and this is the part that I, I do want to be intellectually honest and consistent here. Because the press does this sort of thing where, where you will you will do a Google search for this and you'll get one article attempting to articulate the conservative position and 50 articles talking about how anybody that believes this is a bigot. This causes people to say, yeah, there seems to be something almost conspiratorial about this. And it does lead to people believing or saying or repeating things that are inaccurate. Right or, or that might not do a good job of actually encapsulating th- the argument that we're trying to make. We don't. We do not help ourselves. Actually, can, I, I want to read off um, an earlier segment of this five thirty eight article because it, it might give a okay. So this paragraph here that Nick read earlier, I I, I want to reread a portion of it because I think that it kind of gets to the heart of what Nick was just talking about. When this article says grooming has become the most recent scare tactic of choice for the right, obviously, yeah, yeah. clearly non-biased people. Fox News host Laura Ingram included a segment in her show last month where she claimed public schools have become grooming centers where sexual brainwashing takes place. No lies detected. Here's the thing. <laughs> I guarantee you that they took those words out of context in order to make it sound like that she is is spinning some crazy conspiracy theory. But then... It goes on where, um, you know, the, the, this um, this host from this news network called Joe Biden, the groomer in chief. When, when we use phrases like that, personally, I don't know where the when we use when we use um, phrases like that, personally, I, I don't think it it's super helpful. Now, I'll say this about Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's a lot that she says that I don't agree with, but. When she says the Democrats are the party of grooming and transitioning children, I love the way that they put that in, in, in parentheses to make it, again, sound like that she's crazy. Last I checked, it's not Republicans that are, that are the ones trying to normalize this type of stuff. So I, I actually struggled to, to understand what she said in that quote that's, that's factually incorrect. So, so here's, the, here's the argument. Here's the argument that would come from the left. I'm going to do the best job I possibly can on faithfully. And you need to be careful doing that. Faithfully. No, faithfully. No, I don't. I just need to do the right thing by based off of what the truth is. Faithfully interpreting what I think they're trying to say. And what the left is trying to say is that to suggest that Democrats are the party of grooming and transitioning children, they would argue, is ridiculous because, one, they don't have any intention of trying to sexually abuse children because they're using the term grooming in a very, very specific field. And no, we're not trying to transition children. We're trying to allow children who desire this or feel this to be able to have medical options, right? That would be their response. Now, the question that you would have to, to, to ask with respect to grooming is like, okay, are we using the, the limited definition of grooming where it's just grooming for sexual exploitation or the broader definition of grooming, which can be ideological in nature. And when it comes to transitioning, which, which political party believes that it is appropriate to put kids on puberty blockers and in some cases to medically transition in the sense of surgery, what, what party believes in that? What party believes that that's totally inappropriate? Well, you, Democrats you, believe it's appropriate. And, and the moment they say nobody believes in surgeries for minors, 
I will I will always go on, okay, well, here's a report that shows that there was, you know, well over a thousand conducted last year in the United States. Here's the one that demonstrates that Democrats voted against even limited policy, which said that, okay, you can still use puberty blockers, but you can't engage in surgeries, and they all voted against it. So no, once again, you don't get to tell me nobody wants to when I can show you and I have evidence that says, what about all these cases? Why do you even care about that? Once again, you've moved the goalposts on what the standard is. It's not like I showed you the evidence and you said, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was happening. Yeah, I think that's a bridge too far. Because because your initial argument was nobody wants that or that's not happening. And then when I showed you that it is happening because some people want it, you didn't come back and correct your position. You didn't come back and say, I was wrong. You just came back and then moved the goalposts on what is acceptable. And I think that right there is the reason why um, people like Laura Ingram and Marjorie Taylor Greene and myself (laughs) tend to put them all in the same category because when they're presented with the evidence, um, they end up aligning themselves and, and becoming allies of the grooming behavior that we're pointing out. So, okay, here, and here's the part where I push back on that to be an ally is to make a positive choice in favor of something to be a useful idiot is to essentially say something or to do something or to behave in such a way that actually advocates or assists something that you didn't intend. Sure. Right. Sure. So there, there is a, there's but a distinction. Like you're in the house of delegates and there have been plenty of votes where it's like, okay, we're going to see what you really believe up mm-hmm. on the board. And when every single last one votes in favor of, um, you know, or vote votes against or votes the policy against, that they say that, well, nobody wants that. Okay. Exactly. Well, here's a policy to ensure that yeah. that doesn't happen. Uh, so so it, it, it is one of those things where you can look and go, well, I mean, maybe some of them are useful idiots and they're just going to lockstep, follow the party line. Well, the, the other part that I want to, I want to get to here because it, here's the distinction that is being made, right? Okay. Here's the left wing argument. The left wing argument is okay. Child abuse. Now let, let's, let's, Take away the people that are actually advocating for things like maps, right? Minor attracted persons as a, as a term to replace pedophilia. Those people, I believe, are absolutely allies of grooming, allies of sexual exploitation of children, and and I put them in a completely, I put them in a different category, okay? Because they're coming out and they're essentially acknowledging what they want and where they're going. Then you have a different category of per- person on the left that distinguishes between child and adult. Right, they distinguish between child and adult, and what they're saying is, is that human sexuality is a broad spectrum, and because human sexuality is a broad spectrum, that broad spectrum, provided that it's between consenting people, right? Because that's usually that's usually the the clarification they make, is morally equivalent to what we would have considered traditional human sexuality, which is heterosexual sexuality, and specifically you know, sexual activity between a man and a woman within the boundaries of marriage, right? That, that within a, a good portion of Western civilization, within Christianity, within a number of other faiths is considered the, the pinnacle and, and what constitutes moral sexual behavior, husband, wife within marriage. Okay. Now you can disagree with that, but that was, that was the standard. Even people that didn't necessarily um, hold to that viewpoint still still recognize that there was a different moral and practical level to that sort of sexual relationship versus promiscuity, right? So, so even people that were generally secular in nature would, would generally associate, yeah, 
you know, between a husband and wife, that's different than a guy going out and sleeping with a ton of people, right? Even if they didn't think that there was a God or whatnot, they usually made some sort of distinction between those two things. The, the latest movement has been to essentially make no distinction. Any sort of sexual identification or experience, which is consensual, is morally equivalent. That seems to be, that seems to be the position of the larger LGBTQ movement. Well, if you believe that, then of course you're going to want to educate at a level which says, oh yeah, Katie has two mommies, Johnny has two daddies, there, there's a broad spectrum, some people are this, some people are non-binary. And so of course you have to educate children in this belief system because that is what they've supplanted is the new moral system. The new moral system is any sort of consensual sexual behavior is essentially morally equivalent. And so therefore, if you're elevating one over another, you're suggesting that there's something good or bad or better or worse about a particular type of expression. And that's not, as far as I can tell, that doesn't seem to be permitted within the new LGBTQ paradigm. There's, um, th 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 there's an additional argument that exists for when conservatives go out there and they say the things that, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene or um, Laura Ingram make. Um, in fact, I actually got tweeted one of those arguments when um, I, I, I retweeted a um, ABC News article actually referring to here's all the um, LGBTQ families that are moving out of Florida because of Ron DeSantis's policies down there. And like one of the excerpts was was actually about like a family who took their apparently set. This is crazy, but seven year old transgender daughter. And decided that they wanted to move out of Florida because they felt unsafe being in, you know, Ron DeSantis's state. And um, somebody tweeted about it. And then I retweeted it. And I said, these people scream about genocide as they're engaged in literal child abuse. And then somebody replied to me, somebody that follows me, um, who's very, like definitely on the left, um, and said, how is getting your kid? And I, I think this actually summarizes the um, response that, that we get when we talk about things, again, in this way very politicized yeah. um the the art um the, the the tweet was how is getting your kid the clothes they want and calling them by effectively a nickname child abuse all you do is muddy the waters of what actual abuse looks like that's all you know what couple, one line two line response to my tweet but i i think it actually in many ways encapsulates the response that conservatives will get from some people on the left when it comes to I, again, when when we make, when we use certain language like child abuse or grooming, even when I think it's appropriate, mm -hmm. I, I I think it is appropriate technically to call gender affirmation for a what began as a three year old and is now a seven year old as a form of child abuse. I think it's a form of child abuse, and I'm sorry, I, I'm going to continue to think that it's child abuse. But when I use that term, that's a very loaded term. Child abuse is definitely a loaded term. Yeah. Right. And so when I used that term, the response that I got seemed pretty nefarious that, you know, you're muddying the waters of what child abuse is, you know, how is, is, you know, calling them by a nickname and buying them certain clothes, a form of child abuse. It's interesting because that person calls it a nickname, but if you talk to, uh, like the general, you know, consensus is that that's a that's their new name and their old name is a dead name yeah. and you better not dead name them yeah. it, oh well, i it, love it, how it, simultaneously it's this is just calling them by a nickname and we're also going to legally mandate that you do so yeah because yeah. last i checked um what was it bill c17 in canada the one that made jordan peterson famous this was like five or six years ago 
he was just an obscure college professor that was posting yeah. YouTube videos where he was only getting a couple hundred views. And then he became a worldwide sensation because he, he spoke out against the Canadian Parliament when they passed a bill in Canada mandating speech. speech. Yeah, compelling speech. And that is, it's not just unique to Canada. This is... It, this, these are policies that blue states are now exploring. They're yeah. trying to do oh, the same thing in California, California right I, I watched the testimony from the California state representative who was, who, was dis, who was discussing how we should affirm our children and all of their things. And then basically what they're going to do is classify not affirming your child's stated gender as a form of child abuse. Now, again, are, are they making a distinction between child abuse where someone is literally beating their child to death or starving them versus not? Yes, they're making distinctions, but they're still putting it within that larger category. And, and we actually saw we actually saw something in, in uh, Virginia where Delegate Elizabeth Guzman, who's currently running for state Senate in Virginia, essentially offered up something very similar to that and, and said so on TV. And then all of a sudden there was a huge blowback. And it, it, what was funny about it was uh, Delegate Guzman said, well, I'm not going to carry this bill because with a Republican-controlled House, they'd never let it get to the floor anyways. And Speaker Todd Gilbert came on and said, you go ahead and submit that bill. It will get to the floor for a vote. I promise you. Mm -hmm. Submit the bill. And she didn't. So the point of all this is, is, is to show that, again, we, we have this like consistent movement within the left trying to suggest that grooming only means one thing. Right, they they gave a little bit of lip service that it can mean more than that, but but what Republicans mean is this, okay? Now here's what I want to do next. I want to look at what we're seeing within this larger movement of sexual identity is is rooted in a lot of things, but but the two people that are kind of considered the the founding fathers uh, of this are are Alfred Kinsey and John Money. Now they're not the only ones. I'm not suggesting that they are, but they are largely held up as being the people that kind of pulled back the veil on actual human sexuality and demonstrated that, that a lot of the things that were considered deviant or wrong or abnormal were actually perfectly common within society. And therefore, you know, we needed to change our laws and change the way that we thought about these things. All right. So well, on the left, aren't these two men still held up to be great thinkers? Yes. Yes. They're, so they're still heavily defended. They still admire these men. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about Kinsey here. So th this is the part where, you know, uh, Kinsey wrote the book, uh, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. One came out in 48, one came out in 53. When it came out in 48, like everyone like jumped on this as, oh my gosh, this guys have just opened our minds into what is, what is actually, um, you know, common within human sexuality. And, and I'll, I'll read off of this. This is the Indiana University zoologist. He was a zoologist and father of the sexual revolution, almost single-handedly redefined the sexual mores of everyday Americans. The problem was he had to lie to do it. The weight of this point must not be underestimated. The science that launched the sexual revolution has been used for the past 50 years to sway court decisions, pass legislation, introduce sex education into our schools, and even push for a redefinition of marriage. Kinseyism was the very foundation of this effort. I will say this. That is a pretty accurate statement. That's not, again, not to say that the only person that conducted this sort of research, the only person that was influential, but if you want to talk about the person that pretty much blew open the gates, this guy did it. And then they go on to explain, let's consider the facts. When Kinsey and his coworkers published sexual behavior in the human male and the human female in 48 and 53 respectively, they turned middle-class values upside down. Many traditionally forbidden sexual practices Kinsey and his colleagues proclaimed were surprisingly commonplace. 
85% of men and 48% of women said they had premarital sex. 50% of men and 40% of women have been unfaithful in their marriage. Incredibly, 71% of women claim that their affair hadn't hurt their marriage. And a few even said it had helped. What's more, 69% of men had been with prostitutes. 10% had been homosexual at least three for at least three years. And 17% of farm boys had experienced you know what, with animals. Implicit in Kinsey's report was the notion that these behaviors were biologically normal and hurt no one. Therefore, people should act on their impulses with no inhibition or guilt. Go ahead and scroll down. In 1948, uh, the report came out to rave reviews and sold in a sounding 200,000 copies in two months. Kinsey's name was everywhere from the titles of pop songs uh, to the pages of Life, Times, Newsweek, and The New Yorker. Kinsey was, quote, presenting facts, Look Magazine proclaimed. He was revealing not what should be, but what is, dubbed Dr. Sex and applauded for his personal courage. The researcher was compared to Darwin, Galileo, and Freud. Here we go, but this get, there's the important part. But beneath the popular approbation, many astute scientists were warning that Kinsey's research was gravely flawed. The list of critics, Kinsey biographer James H. Jones observes, read like a who's who of American intellectual life. They included anthropologists Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, Stanford University psychologist Louis N. Terman, Carl Menger, MD, founder of the famed um, Menager, sorry, Menager, Menager Institute, Psychiatrist Eric Foreman and Lawrence Kuby, cultural critic Lionel Trillian of Columbia University and countless others. Go ahead and scroll down. Um, what was what was interesting is what we're going to get in the next part, and this is part of the problems of this research. Scroll down some more. So again, just keep in mind how influential this guy was. All right, humans as animals. So one of the big things that, that Kinsey kind of pushed was this idea that human beings were just basically a higher form of animal, right? So he began studying human sexuality. Kinsey was the world's leading expert on the gall wasp. Trained as a zoologist, he saw sex purely as physiological animal response. Throughout his books, he continually refers to the human animal. In fact, in Kinsey's opinion, there was no moral difference between one sexual outlet and any other. So it's important to understand that he's bringing in an ideology with respect to sexual experience, right? Not just... Not just this idea. Can I can I also point something out here real quick? Whenever people say, oh, this is just perfectly natural. Look what happens in nature. You, you want to know what happens in nature all the time and pretty much in all the species? Rape. Oh, my gosh. All my the rooster time. is a brute and he goes after my hens. I, I will, it's awful. I will, tell you, I will tell you right now, you're not going to find many animals <clears throat> that seek consent before engaging in that act. So before anybody starts to say, oh, well, we're just a higher form of animal and this is just perfectly natural. And if it happens here, then it happens there and it's perfectly fine. You really want to replicate the animal kingdom? I'm pretty sure you don't. No. All right. Two, skewed samples. This one is really problematic. Go ahead and scroll down here a little bit. Kinsey often presented his statistics, statistics as if they applied to average moms, dads, sisters, and brothers. In doing so, he claimed 95% of American men had violated sex crime laws that could land them in jail. Thus, Americans were told they had to change their sex offender laws to fit the facts. But in reality, Kinsey's reports never applied to average people in the general population. In fact, many of the men Kinsey surveyed were actually prison inmates. Wardell B. Pomeroy, Kinsey co-author and an eyewitness to the research, wrote that by 1946, the team had taken sexual histories from about 1,400 imprisoned sex offenders. Kinsey never revealed how many of these criminals were included in his total sample of about 5,300 white males, but he did admit that including several hundred male prostitutes, additionally, at least 317 of Kinsey's male subjects were not even adults, but sexually abused children. So, Hamilton, could you scroll up just a little bit? I... More, more. Keep going. 
keep going. Um, I pause. Um, <laughs> I find it hilarious that Kinsey's presenting facts. Look, look, magazine proclaimed. That's the same magazine that Bezmanov pointed out was pushing Marxist, yeah, fake Marxist news about how glorious the Soviet Union was when we did our episode about. Um, yeah. about Bezmanov's uh, predictions with like ideological subversion and stuff like that. It was the same magazine. So I, I, I just, that, that, that just like flashed across my mind when you were reading through this earlier. And I thought that was kind of funny to point out. Let's, let's go ahead and scroll, scroll back down. I want to show uh, one of the things we had problem two. scroll down. Uh, problem three, faulty statistics. Uh, given all this, it's hardly surprising that Kinsey's statistics were so seriously flawed that no reputable scientific survey has ever been able to duplicate them. Keep that in mind. He made all of these claims basically suggesting that all these sexual behaviors were perfectly natural and, and regularly going on, but not one reputable scientific survey has ever been able to duplicate them. I'm surprised at this point that Kinsey, they're not able to replicate it. Kinsey claimed, for instance, that 10% of men between the ages of 16 and 55 were homosexual, yet in one of the most thorough nationwide surveys on male sexual behavior ever conducted, scientists at Battelle Human Affairs Research Centers in Seattle found that men who considered themselves exclusively homosexual accounted for only 1% of the population in 1993, right? So, so give it a generation. Or two, maybe. Well, it's already been a generation, and then and then it'll be it'll be more than ten percent. It'll be like twenty five percent because yeah. the, the 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 polling with like Zoomers and which and is where the grooming comes in. The polling with Zoomers and millennials is like way higher. I think it's like it's because 40%. it's a groomed generation. Okay, yes, but the the question now is. Why is that the case? And can you exactly. define well, let's, okay, two different types of it, as Nick pointed gonna, out at the beginning of this episode? We're going to get to that. Let's stay focused on Kinsey for right now, right? Not surprisingly, Kinsey's numbers show marital infidelity to be harmless, also never held up. In one journal of sex and marital therapy, study of infidelity, 85% of marriages were damaged as a result, and 34% ended in divorce. Even spouses who stayed together usually describe their marriages afterwards as unhappy. Atlanta psychiatrist Frank Pittman estimates that among couples who have been married for a long time and then divorced, over 90% of the divorces involve infidelity. So this speaks to this whole idea that infidelity was just a very common thing and not a very big deal. And it didn't hurt anything, speaking, right? Yeah, speaking in a 1955 conference sponsored by Planned Parenthood, no kidding, Kinsey pulled out another statistical bombshell out of his hat. He claimed that of all pregnant women, roughly 95% of singles and 25% of those who were married secretly aborted their babies. A whopping 87% of these abortions, he claims, were performed by bona fide doctors. Thus, he gave scientific authority to the notion that abortion was already a common medical procedure and thus should be legal. All right, let's go to, uh, I, I want to I hit a point here where we talked about his sampling, right? And, and who, who he conducted these, this research on. So this comes from Table 34, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And here's what you're looking at. You're looking at a table, and this is the part where, again, if your kids are in the room, you might want to give them a moment this to This is leave. exceptionally dark. Right? This was in his book, people. Yeah. At the same time that life, look, and everyone else was telling us that, oh my gosh, what a genius. This guy is just, you know, pulling back the veil on human sexuality. Right. This is this is considered scientific experimentation. Here's the table. Here's how the table reads. At the top, it says age, number of orgasms, time involved to achieve orgasm, presumably. Age, number of so that's what it is. You got I two think it columns. was time involved for the study for that person. No, it, it, time involved. Okay. So we got three columns here. Now let me read the ages for you. Five months. 11 months, two years, two and a half years, four-year-old, 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 seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 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 13-year-old, 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 14-year-old. 
He put it in his book. No, where where were the people? Where were the people at Look Magazine or anywhere else or the authorities for that matter looking at this going, how the hell did you get this data exactly? Right. And it's and it's each of these people, but look at the number of orgasms on them. It's yeah. like this is multiple times, like multiple. They took these subjects at this age group and performed certain acts in order to achieve certain results and then recorded the amount of time involved in order to do it so that they come back later and they could show that, oh, look, even as young as five, five months, months old, five months, humans are, are inherently sexual beings. And then we look, we look at things like this and we say, wait a second, the one of the godfathers of your movement was clearly engaged in some activities that seemed fairly nefarious. Now, the argument came back later. Well, this doesn't prove he did the study specifically. He could just be looking at the data. Where did he get it from? Yeah, where did he get it? And who performed it? You're not telling me a five-month-old testified to this, right? An 11-month-old? How about a two-and-a-half-year-old? Did they testify to it? You but, don't get to you don't get to look at a table like this from the guy that is considered the father of the sexual revolution. You don't get to look at a table like this and tell me there wasn't some very serious sexual deviancy involved in what they were trying to prove and therefore justify. It's not like he said this and then came to the conclusion, "Oh my gosh, this is horrible that somebody exploited these children." No, no, no. This was used as justification for look how natural all of this is. But we're the crazy ones. We're, he, we're, we're the ones that are being bigoted and extreme. These these are all things that he documented. And isn't he the one that was also known for like collecting his uh, employees together to have them do sexual video, acts, videotaping, videotaping it acts. so that he could take notes? Yeah. I mean, he's he is this man's a pedophile. This man engaged in a whole host of, of activities where when you actually dive into the research and how he conducted it and what he did, you've got to start looking and wondering what the actual motivations were. Because he approached this from the sub subject that we are all just we're all just another form of animal. That's it. We're just a human animal. And again, biologically, people look at well, yeah, you're just a mammal. You're just really is that all we are? Is that all? Because that's a that is a truth claim, right? That's that's not just something where you can look at it and say, oh, it, no, no, that's a truth claim. Are we just this? Are we just this? Is that truly all we are? Because I got news for you, science doesn't science doesn't prove that. Now let's look at John Money, the other person that we've listed up. And the reason why we're, we're listing John Money here, and we're going to talk about this. Go ahead and scroll up to the, the top of the article, and then we'll come back down to this. this we've uh, briefly covered who he was we, We've before. covered it before, but the reason why I want, to, I want to put this out is Money advanced the use of more, and this is Wikipedia, Money advanced the use of more accurate terminology in sex research. All right, you just changed that on me. Okay. Uh, coining the terms gender role and sexual orientation. Despite widespread, widespread belief, money did not coin gender identity. Money pioneered drug treatment for sex offenders to extinguish their sex drives. He began testing anti-androgen um, medications on offenders as early as practice with, with proved success. Um, in a 1997 academic study, criticized Money's work in many respects, particularly in regard to the involuntary sex reassignment of the child, David Reamer. And money's abuse of Reamer and his brother when they were children. Go ahead and scroll back down because I want you to. Uh, I want. I want to look at this real quick. Scroll back down to the the um, portion where it talks about this. Okay, here we go. The sex reassignment of David Reamer. 
During his professional life, Money was respected as an expert on sexual behavior, especially known for his views that gender was learned rather than innate. This is the whole nature versus nurture. So what he's essentially claiming is that, no, 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 it's, it's not that you were born with certain characteristics based off of your biological sex, which they defined as gender. No, 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 those are things that are just taught. However, it was later revealed that his most famous case of David Reamer, born Bruce Reamer, was fundamentally flawed. In 1966, a botched circumcision left eight-month-old Reamer without a penis. Money persuaded the baby's parents that sex reassignment surgery would be in Reamer's best interest. At the age of 22 months, Reamer underwent an orchiotomy, which, I'm sorry, I probably butchered that, in which his testicles were surgically removed. He was reassigned to be raised as female, and his name changed from Bruce to Brenda. Money further recommended hormone treatment to which the parents agreed. Money then recommended a surgical procedure to create an artificial vagina, which the parents refused. Money published a number of papers reporting the, his reassignment as successful. Right When you, when you look at these like long-term studies, and say, successful. David Reamer was raised under the optimum gender-rearing model which was the common model for section gender, socialization, medicalization for intersex youth. The model was heavily criticized for being sexist and for assigning an arbitrary gender binary. Now, whether either child resisted money, money would get angry. Both Reamer and Brian recall that money was mild-mannered around their parents, but ill-tempered when alone with them. Money also forced the two children to strip for genital inspections. When they resisted inspecting each other's genitals, money got very aggressive. Reamer says he told me to take my clothes off. And I just did not do it. I stood there and he screamed now louder than that. I thought he was going to give me a whooping. So I took my clothes off and stood there shaking. Money's rationale for his treatment of the children was his belief that childhood sexual rehearsal play at thrusting movements and copulation was important for a healthy adult gender identity. This is another one of your godfathers of sexual orientation. I'm stunned that Wikipedia has allowed any of this stuff to stay up here. Give it a couple years. Give it a couple years. This won't be here anymore. Remember when we did our episode on um, Marxism? Cultural and Marxism, and they completely changed. Within, in 2016, they gave a very accurate rendition of what cultural Marxism was. And then Marxism it became a conspiracy theory. And then it was a conspiracy theory. Despite the pain and turmoil of the brothers for decades, money reported on Reamer's progress is the John Joan case, describing apparently successful female gender development using his case to support the feasibility of sex reassignment and surgical reconstruction, even in non-intersex cases. So again... We're making a distinction here between intersex and non-intersex. There are people that are born, right, even though they might be you know, biologically male or female, but they have underdeveloped fe or, uh, genitalia, which can present as both female and male genitalia. That's, that's considered intersex, and it's considered an abnormality. It's something that takes place that they try to correct for because everyone recognizes that it's not advantageous to the person. But now he's talking about in non-intersex cases, you're telling me this isn't a guy with an agenda. You're telling me this isn't a guy that was operating essentially in what we would call bias confirmation. This guy had a theory and was determined to ensure that his experimentations on two children confirmed his theory, wrote a bunch of books that said it confirmed his theory, and apparently didn't have enough people willing to come forward, at least at that point, and say what you're doing is abuse. No, it's not. We're just simply trying to help this child. We're simply trying to help this child reconcile what happened to them or, or their, their community. Because after all, gender is just a social construct. It's non-binary. <clears throat> so what was, the, um, what was the result here? Well, in July, 20, or in July 2002, 
Brian was found dead from an overdose of antidepressants in May 2004. David committed suicide by shooting himself in the head with a sawed-off shotgun at the age of 38. According to his mother, he had recently become depressed after losing his job and separating from his wife. Money argued that media response to Diamond's expose was due to right-wing media bias. Gosh, doesn't that sound familiar? And the anti-feminist movement. He said his detractors believe masculinity and femininity are built into the genes so women should get back to the mattress and the kitchen. However, intersex activists also criticized money, stating that the unreported failure had led to surgical reassignment of thousands of infants as a matter of policy. Privately, money was mortified by the case, colleagues said, and as a rule did not discuss it. Researcher Marianne Case wrote that money made fraudulently deceptive claims about the malleability of gender in certain patients who had involuntarily undergone, involuntary undergone sex reassignment surgery, and this fueled the anti-gender movement. Do you see what we're talking about here? Notice how this, notice how even when they're, even when they're trying to present a criticism of money, it's like, and this fueled the anti-gender anti movement. movement. You see how it is? It's, it's, it doesn't matter. Heads they win, tails we lose. Somehow this guy killed two people. And yet it's really the the real story is it, 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 it you know what it is it's like a more sophisticated version of of the idiots at the Washington Post talking about Republicans pouncing. Yeah. How many times have you seen a a bland news story and we don't talk about this we, we talk about other stuff in this podcast. We usually do not talk about look at the latest thing that Joe Biden said here, but there's a lot of Republicans that do. And notice how whenever anybody any random politician or personality on the left says something or does something the story is always on the right's reaction to the thing that was done or said, yeah. not on the thing that was done or said. Yeah. That, that is the, the base definition. That, that is the typical Washington Post, New York Times playbook. But the thing is, is that you, you only see like an unrefined version of it there. What, what, what you find in places like Wikipedia or really anywhere is that something happens. In this case, this guy killed two people. I'm sorry, but that's what he did. He contributed to the destruction of those two people's lives, and they ultimately committed suicide. One yeah. through extremely violent means, and one one through 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 drug overdose. Well, let, let and, me. And the response is, oh, this is this is bad news because it's going to fuel a right wing backlash. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. There's a hell of a backlash that's coming. Well, look at the, Look at this. Let's go. Let's go down. I'm going to end with this, and then we're going to go into. We're going to. Got one other thing, and then we're going to go into the video that we're going to discuss here. Opinions on pedophilia. Money participated in debates on chronophilias, especially pedophilia. He stated that both sexual researchers and the public do not make distinctions between affectional pedophilia and sadistic pedophilia. Colapatino reported that money told Padika, or Padika, a Dutch journal of pedophilia. If I were to see the case of a boy aged 10 or 12 who's intensely attracted to a man in his 20s or 30s, if the relationship is totally mutual and the bonding is genuinely totally mutual, then I would not call it pathological in any way. They're not hiding the ball. They're not hiding the ball. And, and, and it's in, if you want to see more of this, go look, go look at the, the who's who of the great thinkers of postmodernism, of deconstructionism. I'm talking about Foucault, uh, Derrida. Uh, existentialism. I think Sartre might have been on the list as well. Go look at an article that they wrote in 1977. There was a series of petitions that these people, these great thinkers within the left, signed talking about how it was necessary to decriminalize sex with minors. And talking about it was, it was essentially a moral imperative. But again, we're crazy if we look at all of this and we say there seems to be, there seems to be 
an underlying motivation here with some of the people that were the most influential in pushing this particular approach. All right, next we're going to go and do a video. And this is a video. So we've already talked a little bit about some of the things that Kinsey were doing. We've talked about this whole idea that when we talk about grooming, and again, I've already, I've already acknowledged that there, there can be, you, you can inappropriately accuse someone of grooming for which that is not their in-state or objective. But the reason why we're going to listen to this is because I think parents need to be, I think parents need to be more aware of what grooming actually looks like from a, a sexual predator objective, right? What, what is their objective? What are they trying to do? And then we're also going to look later on in the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about grooming from an ideological perspective. And we're going to look at some of the comparisons. We're going to look at some of the similarities. So this is Jack Reynolds, who was, I believe, a, a, he was, a, I think, a little league coach. Um, and he had been convicted, uh, prosecuted. And then he gave this interview to essentially discuss what he did and how he did it. Convicted of what? Child molestation. Okay. All right, go ahead and go ahead and bring it all the way back to the beginning and hit play. All right, there we go. How did you get them alone? Grooming. Um, I would check out their family situation. I would check out their clothing to see how well they were, you know, financially. I would check out their social interaction with other kids, you know. When we were on the ballparks or on the, on the gym floor, you know, I would make sure which ones I wanted to molest. I would give them special attention, congratulate them, talk to them when I know that I would never be allowed to talk to anybody else, you know aside from everybody. I would give them the attention that a, an official is not supposed to give anybody. And it made them feel like, wow, Pause. he's paying me attention. So this is, an, this is an important component here. It's not just about giving attention, right? It's not, it's not just about you know, reinforcing someone or making someone feel special or whatnot. You notice what he's saying here. It's that he was giving an attention that an official, someone in a position of authority over children, should not give, and he was trying to do it separately and secretly, right? So there's, there's this idea of isolating the child from the rest of the group in order to pay them special attention, which the child could identify as unique. Let's go ahead and hit play. You know, it, it is a direct form of grooming. Were there certain characteristics that you looked for in children before molesting them? In children, yes, but more I also looked at their families. If I thought the father was a threat, I would not approach the child. Pause. We, we, I talked about this on a reel not too long ago. If I thought the father was a threat, let's keep in mind what he's saying here. He didn't say if I thought they had a father around. He, he didn't say if the, the father showed up to the baseball games. He didn't say if I, yeah, I knew that they had a biological father somewhere. If I thought the father was a threat, what makes you as a father a threat? I'll tell you, it's a lot of the things that the same people that are sitting here talking about toxic masculinity. Those are the things that make you a threat. Now, can masculine traits be toxic and inappropriate and wrong? Yes, if they're utilized inappropriately. 
But those same traits of competitiveness, aggression, the ability to engage in physical conflict when necessary, those are neutral categories which can either be good or bad. But so much of the discussion on toxic masculinity seems to be working toward creating an image of the man, of the husband, of the father being docile. That what's really needed within society in order to combat aggression or unnecessary violence or anything of that nature is for men to be docile. Not according to this guy. This guy loved docile, ineffective men because what it meant was their children were easy targets. No, men are supposed to be a threat to anybody that would pose a danger to their families or to the things that they love. But the only way you can do that is if you're actually capable of engaging in the sort of physical violence necessary in order to be a threat. So it goes back to what so many have said to what Peterson has pointed out. No, you need to be capable of doing this and then you need to control it and you need to make sure it only comes out in the service of that which is noble and right. You actually made a short video about this. Um, I think it was in your reels. And it's interesting, some of the commentary that I saw from it, it's almost like they didn't even watch the video. <clears throat> they, There were women that came in and said, well, you're not taking into account mama bears and I can be a threat and all of this. The problem is, is that really doesn't play out. Mama bears, when they know something's going on, absolutely. The problem is, is if you're trying to do both jobs and you're, you're working your tail off trying to support your family all by yourself, there is time and space for exploitation. Um, and, and I have to say, I have seen many women throughout our time, I mean, whether it be, you know, the li Little League um, area, soccer, you know, football, I'll see single moms who they like the fact that there are some really good male role models here and they want their son to glean from that. And so they will put them in the path of these people because they lack that father figure. So they, they want to surround them with more father figures that right there alone gives, gives, um, sort of entry for people like this, if, if they are in the sphere, well, it's, to it's, try to wedge themselves into place. Because it is, I will say this, it is a good role for good men to play, to be coaches, to be pastors, to be the, the sort of people that can come yeah. along and, and provide a strong male figure. But, but predators, but predators seek also out see those situations. Predators yeah. seek areas with a target-rich environment. They want, you know, they want to be in the schools, they want to be in the churches, they want to be at the little league game. They, they want to be at parks. It's where their targets are. So let's, okay, let's start. But I wanted to, I wanted to solidify this point about what it means to be a strong father. If it, I'll tell you, and there's two components of this are really important. If you're a present father, but not a threat, your kid's a target. If you're the sort of father that can be a threat, but you're not present, your kid's a target. You need to be both. Go ahead. If I thought that the child had friends that he would tell, I would not approach him. If I thought the child had friends that were in the same capacity he was, I would approach him for the simple fact that if I could molest him, I could lure him into believing, grooming him into believing that he would enjoy it 
and therefore I can manipulate him into having his other friends come and be molested by me as well. Pause. So perhaps. Oh, a, a gosh. So this is, I mean, this is not just, so this is grooming in the sense of not only grooming, but essentially you're now using the target of who you're grooming to help recruit and groom others. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is a reason why, there's a reason why many sexual abusers and molesters have themselves been abused and molested. Pause, or excuse me, play. A child that doesn't really have a whole lot of friends, maybe not really a strong family, things like that. Yes, no spiritual values. Um, Weak in education. Pause. You know. I think it's interesting that he said no spiritual values. And, and th- this is, the reason why I think this is interesting is because spiritual values essentially create a, a sort of objective morality. And if there is no objective morality, and this is something that I argue with Christian parents all the time, I'd like, you didn't, if, if all you did was raise your kids to believe that whatever you told them were the rules were the rules, then you didn't give them spiritual values. You gave them respect for authority and nothing more. And when you're no longer the authority figure, they go with whatever the new authority figure states. So a, a kid that has no sense of objective moral reality, objective moral laws, laws which are there no matter what authority figure attempts to violate them, right? This is important. This isn't just, this isn't just theological babble. This is important. When a child believes that there's such a thing as objective moral laws, which not only apply to them, but apply to everyone, to include their parents, when parents reinforce, when your child comes up to you and says, Daddy, I I don't think you should have used that word. And you say, this is my house and I'm in charge. What you've just told them is that it's not objective moral values. It's your rule as the authority. What happens when a different authority figure comes along and reinforces the idea that there's no objective moral values. No, no, no. There, there's just the values the authority tells you there is. There's a question if we could ask it real quick. Yeah. Um, what about good to great dads who have been removed from the family by a mother in divorce um, and then the state helps her keep the father away? So I've, I've actually, I've tried to help people navigate this before. I I had uh, someone who was a veteran, very similar situation, wanted a relationship with his kids. The state created an environment where it was very, very difficult to achieve because in most cases, the state sides in favor of the mother when it comes to things like custody battles. Here's the two things I can tell you. I'm not telling you it's fair and I'm not telling you you should like it. Uh, I am saying that we are starting to realize more and more within the legislatures that there um, has been there has not been enough consideration given to the fact that good fathers need to be alive, need to be present in their children's life. And there, there's some legislation that's coming forward that is seeking to correct that. Right. So that's, that's one thing. So like getting, getting the state uh, away from putting the uh, fathers at a disadvantage merely because they're a father, merely because they're a man. Secondly, the the two things that I, I can, I can try to tell you is um, obviously who you marry is very, very important. Um, but if you find yourself in this situation, you're already in it. Two things that are, that are absolutely critical is that you need to be able to demonstrate that you can provide and you need to be able to, to demonstrate that you are a positive uh, force within your, your, your child's life to the degree that you can. Um, because like I said, I am starting to see some of the attitude in this shift uh, in, in a way that is, is positive for those dads that really are trying to be a, a positive force. But to the extent that you can be involved in your child's life, you're going to have to go the extra mile. And, and again, like I said, we can say all day long, it's not fair. You're right, it isn't. This is one of the reasons why divorce is so horrible. It's one of the reasons why um, 
you know, the institution of marriage is so important and should be held up within a, a strong moral framework. But if you already find yourself in a situation, make sure that you're capable of providing and make sure you're not doing anything which violates the rules. One of the things I have seen people do that are predatory, that I've seen people do within these custody battles and things like this, is they will try to create conditions where they can go back and show that you violated one of the rules, right? You, you either, you showed up late, you showed up, like for instance, they have some situations where you're not allowed to go and get your child if you have like your girlfriend with you or your new fiance. Do not do anything to violate the rules because that creates the legal justification in order to make sure that it, it becomes more and more strict on you. So don't fall for those traps if that's the sort of environment that you find yourself in. And you know what? It is going to take a lot of extra work. It's going to take a lot of extra time. It's going to be frustrating. But to the extent that you can do it and to the extent that you can you can double down on insisting on being um, on, on using the, the, the time with your child that you are allotted, uh, and, and using the mechanisms that you can use to interact in a positive way, that is absolutely critical. The other thing I would tell you is this, and this is a trap a lot of people fall into. The moment it becomes, um, the moment the children become the battleground from the parents and trying to influence the child against a particular parent, children pick up on that. Children pick up on that. One of the greatest things that my parents did when they got divorced, and my mom was the custodial parent, my mom insisted that I have a, a good relationship with my father. I, I'd go and I'd spend the summers living with my father. I spent the school years living with my mother. My mother did not run down my father to me. My father did not run down my mother to me. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there was instances where they fought behind the scenes. I'm sure there was instances when they made flippant comments in front of us. What I'm trying to tell you is that I have no real memory of either side trying to denigrate or demean the other. And the end result is I have a good relationship with both of them. So even if you find yourself in a situation where the other person, the other party is trying to denigrate you to the child, you be the one that reinforces how much you love your child, how much you're there for them and everything else. Don't, don't try to fall into that trap of using, of denigrating the mother or denigrating the father to the child. I, I just, I honestly believe that that's a huge pitfall that ends up hurting you in a court case as well. Yeah. We, I, I come from a, another side where, um, uh, the, the two families were less amicable than um, than Nick's family was. However, um, you still had a situation where they did try to keep up like a friendly yeah. uh, front um, for the kids. But there were there are certain situations that can be dangerous. Um, I'll just honestly one one situation. I remember it was my dad's week to come and get us, and um, my mom wouldn't let him take us. Well, the reason she wouldn't let him take us is because he was completely drunk and she made him sleep it off in the driveway um, until the next morning when he was sober enough to take us. And so sometimes there are two sides to the story. Oh, yeah. if, if you would have talked to my dad, he would have been like, she wouldn't let me take the kids and these are my kids. Well, he was also really drunk yeah. and he could have killed us. Um, so just, just kind of from the kid's perspective, we knew what was going on too. And it wasn't because my mom was telling us. Yeah. It was because we could see it. Yeah. All right, let's go next. Needs help in many ways. Um, even from uh, split parenting, you know, has a mother who may be having problems with the family, you know, well, here comes superhero in to help out, you know, wow, well, thank you very much. No problem. You ever need me to take him away for the night so you can have a night out? No problem. It works. Pause. 
So this I, goes, I never saw the whole interview. Goes, I can't believe he said it. This goes back to Tina's point where he was saying he would come in as the hero, the single mother. He's the coach. He's the positive male role model that she desperately needs in her child's life. Now, again, I believe there's a lot of people who coach, who pastor, who do these other things that have the nothing but good intention. But as a parent, we don't get to we don't get to just automatically assume that because they've entered into our child's life in a profession or a position which may be you know good in and of itself doesn't mean the person seeking that profession or that access has good intentions. And he was just talking about how he would exploit not only the child, but the single mother who's tired, who needs a break, who wants there to be a positive male role model within their child's life, right? That's, again, it's another one of the problems of what happens when you don't have a positive male role model, ideally the father in that child's life. Pause. How did you find your victims? I found my victims moving from town to town. Um, I scoped them out on um, school grounds. I scoped them out in Little League Diamonds. Um, I scoped them out in my own backyards, my neighborhoods, and things like that. Um, I worked with people who had younger brothers. I socialized with those people so I could get in touch with their younger brothers and begin the grooming process. And. Um, Eventually, it would take time, but I knew what I was doing. It was all calculated. I mean, this is nothing that happened overnight. You know, I knew, and I planned it all. It started out where I would move from one town to another. When I got located in one town, um, I would, you know, survey the children in the town to see. It was always a small town. It was never a big one. Um, because big towns have big police forces, and big police forces tend not to be very friendly. Small towns have small police forces. You know, they probably never even heard of a child molester or a sex offender, or never even had to deal with one. I knew that. At least I played upon that. And um, I got involved in Little League Baseball because I knew from my high school days that I could umpire Little League Baseball. I could umpire baseball. I was good at it. I was good at refereeing basketball and other sports because I could not play worth a crap in high school. But I enjoyed the sport so much that I did not want to not be a part of it. So I took up managing in high school and then our coaches allowed me to referee intramural. And when I got to referee intramural, that gave me direct access to the younger boys. And that was how my molesting began, was in high school, when I had direct access to the younger boys through the intramurals program. So, all right. So that's Some the, things never change. I, I, like, my eyes lit up when he was like, yeah, I, I targeted smaller towns because, you know, police forces, and they usually don't have as much crime as larger cities, and they might not have even heard of this type of thing. Like, it... I don't know. It's it's that type of activity between serial molesters, rapists, and murderers is actually quite common. There's a there's obviously a lot of murder that goes on in big cities, but um, yeah. So, 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 I mean, um, I, I remember when I um, brought up the story of the the man from the train. The same thing happened a century ago. Um, you know, that, that he, he didn't target big cities, he targeted small towns. So I don't know. It's just, it's interesting how that's some things, some things never change. And that certainly doesn't, there's actually a comment, 
um, from the uh, chat that I wanted to read off um, and kind of address. Um, this one guy, Wolfman Jack, you're still in the stage of innocence that believes that this can be solved by voting. Uh, where we'll did any that, of us bring up yeah. voting? We're not. <laughs> yeah, he was I, was, I was having a conversation with him in the chat. Uh, Jack, where did anybody bring up the word voting in this podcast? Last that I checked, one of the common arguments that Nick makes on this show is that you cannot vote your way out of some of these problems. And I, and I make this as an elected official. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a state representative. And, and I always tell people, I'm not saying ignore politics, but the moment you believe politics is what's going to save you from all of this, you're, I'm sorry, you're in trouble. He's no. probably thinking that because we are taking a sort of left versus right view on this, that it's probably along those lines because of that. Um, the, but, but it's only because we're actually looking at grooming behavior that that is largely on the left right well, now. Well let's look let's look at let's look at this because I'm I'm we're going to go into we're going to go into a um do you, a do you have any thoughts on the video Nick? Well yeah, I mean overall like a lot of people look at this and be like how is this guy even in a position to be able to do a video like this? And and yeah, I, I think I mean shoot Florida just passed legislation saying that you can now, you know, the the death penalty is on the table for for child rapists. Um the thing is is that there is there is value in understanding how someone like this operates, and the next thing that we're going to talk about, and um, this this grooming group, and it comes from signs of grooming, um, and it says though grooming can take many different forms and often often follows a similar pattern. So we're going to go through this this pattern real quick. Victim selection. Abusers often observe possible victims and select them based off of ease of access to them or their perceived vulnerability gaining access and isolating the victim. Abusers will attempt to physically or emotionally separate a victim from those protecting them and often seek out positions in which they can have contact with minors. That 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 is like when they basically say you can't tell don't tell your, you know, I'm your family now. We're we're a team together against yeah. your parents. Yeah. Trust development and keeping secrets. Abusers attempt to gain the trust of a potential victim through gifts, attention, sharing secrets, and other means to make them feel that they have a caring relationship and to train them to keep their relationship secret. That, that, that private conversations, that developing you know, a, a sense of, of trust with the other person, that that person is the one that truly understands them and that they have, um, there's a certain degree of vulnerability between the two of them because they've shared things that nobody else knows. And this is the one where we, we always point back to when you can transition in school in secret from your parents, you know, and you've got these people that wear ally stickers and you can talk to them and not your parents that... It's one of the reasons why a lot of the people who throw out the term groomer, um, it's because there are certain similarities in here that can't be denied, but it doesn't meet all of them. But. Desensitization to touch and discussion of sexual topics. Abusers will often start to touch a victim in ways that appear harmless, such as hugging, wrestling, and tickling, and later escalate to increasingly more sexual contacts, such as massages or showering together. Abusers may also show the victim pornography or discuss sexual topics with them to introduce the idea of sexual contact. And then finally, attempt by abusers to make their behavior seem natural. To avoid raising suspicions for teens who may be closer in age to the abuser, it can be particularly hard to recognize as tactics used in grooming. Be alert for signs that your teen has a relationship with an adult that includes secrecy, undue influence or control, or pushes personal boundaries. Okay, Hamilton, here's where I want you to go. Skip the next one. 
and go to the TikTok one. Go to that one. All right. So we just, we heard a thing from Jack Reynolds. We just talked about the different steps of grooming. This is Jeffrey March, who was one of the most popular and I would argue powerful um, activists on, on TikTok. Let's go ahead and hit play. I want to talk to the kids. Parents watch the video and then hand the phone over to the young kids. Hi there. Um, I get asked a lot, are you a boy or a girl? And I love that question. And so I wanted to just tell you, sometimes human beings are more than boy or girl. Sometimes we're something else. Sometimes we're both. Sometimes um, we kind of float in between. And sometimes we're a boy, sometimes we're a girl. Um, Because human beings are creatures, and we're wild and exciting. But I want to ask you a favor. If you see a kid like me, or an adult like me, would you be extra nice to them? Would you do me a favor and be very, very kind? Um, Yeah, like anybody, we can feel lonely. And so if you're kind to us, it would be really, really important. Pause. What a creep. So, so you understand there that you understand there that again, he's actually putting himself in the position of vulnerability. Yeah. He's a victim. He's the victim. Right. And it's, and it's imperative that you be, you be nice. Now, again, you can look at that and, and if you can look at that and say, well, he's just, he's just trying to tell kids to be nice to people that look like him. What's so bad about that? What's so wrong about that? Let's go to the, um, let's go to this one. Trans activists offer gender confused minors cash and Uber rides to get them away from home. Go ahead and scroll down on this one. This is about resources, right? And this was, I believe, done in, was this one done in Fairfax? We can pay for Ubers, Lyfts, and other passes if you need to leave immediately, wrote one Pride Liberation Project leader to adolescent members. Scroll down. From coast to coast, transgender activists are working to push chemical castration and gentle mutilation on minors at all costs. In September, Governor Gav Newsom signed Senate Bill 107 into law, blocking officials from enforcing other states' laws that hinder access to transgender medical procedures and drugs for minors. Meanwhile, in Virginia, the Pride Liberation Project is organizing resources to help confuse minors whose parents are not supportive of their gender or sexual identity experimentation to run away from their homes to stay with a queer-friendly adult. Again, now there's going to be some people like, well, this is an isolated incident. This is different. No, no, no. Here's what happens. Here's what happens every time we say something like this. We're like, this is the sort of thing that is dangerous. That isn't happening. Show me one example. Here's the example. Oh, so you don't think a child that's being abused by their parents every single time. We're being gaslighted, man. Every single time. I would just, I would, I would love it for one one like elected Democrat to say, you know what? This is inappropriate. I'm, I'm sorry. I may get what they're trying to get at with somebody in an abusive family, but we already have, we already have mechanisms where someone can leave a home where they're being physically abused. And this environment, you know that they're not going this to. environment on its own, this, this whole mechanism that they're trying to put into place on its own is causes there to be sort of a, a safe uh, environment for someone who is a pedophile to insert themselves. So even if the people trying to push this are really have really good intentions and they just want to get kids out of a bad situation, well, it it would be fairly easy for someone to insert themselves into this position in order to exploit these kids. Mm-hmm. It, you you know, Nick, that they're not going to do it. 
No, no. Right. When, when you said I would like for just one Democrat to stand up and, and be they're They're not going to do it. And the reason not even the most benign Democrat, not even Abigail Spanberger, supposed mm-hmm. independent moderate is 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 going to ever, ever speak out against this type of stuff because it, it amounts to political suicide to do so. And, and the reason why is because there is a, a there is a political component to this. And I think that is where the right kind of falls apart when it comes to talking about this. We we see this stuff because most people on the right don't actually practice this type of stuff. And so they see this stuff and they 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 respond with well, the way that I respond, they respond with with like disgust, right? And and in our, our immediate instinct is to be like, this is grooming, this is child abuse, this is this, the, we, we we use these phrases that are technically true, um, but they leave out the political component of it. And there is a political component to it. And and here's what I mean. Like, I've talked about this before. I'll, I'll try to summarize it. The left preys on politically, not sexually. The left preys on what they themselves call marginalized communities, quote unquote. And the reason, the vulnerable. yes, yeah. the reason why, I mean, Democrats will tell you this actually, if you, if you, because well, they to, believe they're, they believe they're supporting, they think they're standing up for them. them political mm-hmm. power. Yeah. And, and so they, th- this is why I've said before, the worse off an individual or group acts, the more the left lavishes praise on them, because usually in a properly functioning society, the worse off a person or group acts, the more ostracized they would be. And they would actually be given less power and influence over people. We do not allow the mentally ill, for example, to write our laws laws. Why? Because it would be detrimental for society for somebody who's suffering from from schizophrenia to be writing our legal code. Um, but that the fact is is that thus we we deprive them of political power, not necessarily through through a legal system, but but through a social system. They, they're ostracized from political power. So the left lavishes praise on these type of people because they don't have anywhere else to go. And they monopolize power through those people. And and the way that that, that the left can the, the, the way that it's supposed to work is all that you do is you get 51% of, of, of marginalized communities together and suddenly you have a coalition of the oppressed and you can actually run society yourself. So what are ways to do it? Well, I mean, the easiest way to do it is to convince somebody that they're oppressed. Because the hard way to do it would be to like actually change the demographics of this country, which the left has tried to do, but they, they, they kind of started to fail on that front because you saw blacks and Hispanics and ethnic minorities became more conservative over time, especially as they integrated into American culture, assimilated, made more money, rose up in the world. You're seeing this with Hispanics right now. There's a huge political shift going on in like South Texas, Miami, where they're getting more conservative. And so the race card is not sufficient. It's a necessary but not sufficient tool that the left uses in order to obtain political power. They need more than just dividing people on race. They can't get to 50 plus one doing that. So the most obvious way is through the gender stuff. It's through the LGBTQ stuff. There's already a movement that was there outside of this political stuff. And so by cultivating that and encouraging more people to identify as part of that, they're automatically given oppressor status. And we've already established that if they're given oppressor status, they're immediately more likely to align themselves with the left. Well, the the so I I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. the The thing that is interesting about this is 
There, there was another thing that Jeffrey March did. So the one we actually showed you was actually fairly benign. There's another one he did where he actually talks about, hey, your parents screwed up, right? And that's why I have a Patreon account where we can have private conversations, where we can talk about things. Uncensored. Uncensored in a way that's not as public, right? I'm not making this up. He went right out there and said it. Like there's an article right here that talks about it, a video for kids and teaches viewers how to go no, non-contact with their parents, right? There it is. There's a screenshot of it. Scroll down. All right, this is the one where, um, in fact, go ahead and go ahead and uh, yeah, click on this one. Your parents screwed up. It's okay to say so. <laughs> That's why I made a Patreon so that we could talk about it, so that we could connect in a way that has more privacy so that we could talk to each other in a way that's uh, more open and stuff that we wouldn't share like in the comments of a video like this. I think you're worthy and valuable. And I wanted to spend more connected time with you, healing together and hearing your deeply inspiring stories. Pause. It's not going on and they're glad it is. Right? It's not going on and it's glad it is. We're, we're all just being hyperbolic. We're being bigoted. We're being mean. And this guy is actually pretty powerful. He has a huge following. And he has a following that he can basically tell to go and do his bidding and, and hurt, hurt well, people. I mean, let's go. Let's go. Yes. Let's go. Let's go to the article. Let's bring up the other. Um, please don't. No, no. Next one. Next one. This yeah. woman made a, a video where he, you know, he, he said some kind of video and she stitched it and she said, stop trying to have private conversations with our children. And guess well, what the response was from all of March's supporters. The initial response was he's not doing that. He's not trying to groom. He's not. So what did she do? She stitched another video with a ton of March's videos going, this hey one's kids, just for the kids. kids. Hey kids. Hi kids. I have a separate account where we can talk more privately. So what was now? Was the response, was the response for this woman when she brought the receipts, was the response, um, oh gosh, we didn't realize he did all that. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably wrong. You know what? Uh, we love Jeff, but yeah, hey Jeff, you need to be more careful. Was that the response? No, the response was- they To took, destroy her. No, they took pictures of her children going to school and leaving school at particular hours. They sent her messages sent with her the times- with her, the timestamps, letting her know that they knew where her children were. She had two separate two kids at two separate schools, and they knew the time of drop off and pick up for each of them, and they were stalking her family. She did a whole nother video apologizing to Jeffrey March and saying, "Please, I, I won't do anything again. Just please don't target my kids." Right now. That's the sort of thing where when you see this whole Jeffrey March video where he does, and I, I stitched one with Jeffrey March because screw you, but he did one where it's the whole, you will respect us. Like, oh, is that a fact? Okay, well, look, I am happy to respect any human being's right to live their life the way they would like, provided they don't infringe on the rights and liberties of other people to do the same. The moment you start demanding it of me and the moment you demand that I endorse certain things that I do not believe are good for you or for anybody else, and the moment you start to try to engage in activity, which is clearly by definition listed as grooming, oh, you better believe respect is not what's going to be coming your way. And this idea that a community decided to threaten this woman who, by the way, for those of you that can't see this, 
not a right wing cisgendered heterosexual woman, right? We're talking about five minutes ago. She would have been in the oppressed class. Five minutes ago, she would have been in the oppressed class. But there's certain oppressed classes right? which she's, are higher in importance than others. Apparently, but that that is the sort of thing that is the sort of thing that is going on here. And and here's here's what I'm going to tell the left um, because uh, again. The left continually comes out and it's always the same pattern. Nobody wants to do this. That's not going on. Well, what's your big problem with it? You must be a bigot. See, if you said nobody wants to do it and I showed you that some people want to do it, then what you would naturally do if you were honest about it was that you would separate yourself from the people that want to do the thing that you're saying nobody wants to do. If you then tell me it's not going on and I show you ear incontrovertible proof that it's going on, then the natural response from you based off of the original accusation would be to say, I had no idea that was going on. That's horrible. I don't agree with that. But it's not. It's to gaslight. It's to offend. It's to insult. It's to attempt to isolate the people that are saying that about you. So here's, here's the very, very clear message that I need, that I really need to be understood. I don't care what you tell me anymore. I don't care that you want to pretend that you want evidence when you really don't. I don't care when you tell me nobody wants to do things that people clearly want to do. And quite frankly, I'm starting to become really suspect that you want done. I don't care. See, because you didn't just move from, from the column of someone I disagree with or someone I agree with to the column I disagree with. You move from the column of reasonable to unreasonable. You're now an unreasonable person that wants to lie about what you want to do. And then the moment I call you out, you attempt to gaslight me. I'm not interested in having a rational conversation with a person that isn't rational. I'm not interested. Not to mention the fact that your insults mean nothing to me. I've seen what makes you. <laughs> I've, I've seen what makes you cheer. Your booze mean nothing. I've seen what makes you cheer. That's what it comes down to. Your booze mean nothing. I've seen what makes you cheer. And here's the part that really needs to understand. It's not that I'm phobic anything. Disagreement is not phobia. In fact, you want to see attitude, you want to see behavior which is far more phobic in nature. It's the sort of person that automatically assigns the term phobic inappropriately to anyone that disagrees with them in order to avoid having to have a discussion or debate on their position. That is far more indicative of rational fear and hatred than somebody saying, I think what Jeff March is doing is inappropriate, wrong, and potentially illegal and abusive. But yet... I'm supposed to sit here and I'm supposed to be intimidated by this. Oh, brother. Yeah, that ain't happening. That is not happening. It's not happening now. It's not happening ever. What needs to be understood is that there is nothing you can entice me with. There is nothing you can threaten me with that will ever get me to go along with this. Nothing. I love when, when they throw out the, this is phobia. You know, this is transphobia. I, brother, it, it's not fear, it's disgust. Phobia is the incorrect word. Mm -hmm. So look, we've gone through this. I think we've made a pretty good case that there are some very, very powerful people that have been at the beginning of this movement with respect to redefining sexual identity and sexual experience that had some very, very, we'll, we'll call it, devious motivations. Now, does that mean everybody that falls within this category has motivations against children? No, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that everybody that, uh, you know, falls within the, the LGBTQIA plus 
I don't believe that everyone there wants to hurt children or would accept this sort of behavior toward children. But the larger sexual identity movement does seem to be rooted in some pretty bad science and what I would argue is some pretty bad philosophy. Sorry, that's what I believe. If you'd like to have a discussion on that, I'm happy to have a discussion on that. If you'd like to tell me why, no, you don't believe that Kinsey and Mooney actually have had undue influence in this entire movement. No, it is. Isn't it actually Michael Foucault and Derrida and Sartre and everyone else that went along with this sort of behavior that were also heavily influential in postmodernism, deconstructionism, and existentialism, not to mention critical theory. If you want to have that discussion, let's have it. But this whole idea of you attempting to shame people into saying, oh, well, oh, don't, don't do that or don't say that or, you know, gosh, I, I don't want them to get upset or I don't, nope, sorry, over, it's done. The moment you proved you couldn't be intellectually honest or consistent, the moment you proved that you didn't really want the evidence of what we said was going on, the moment I decided discussion is no longer necessary here because you're not interested in it. But I will tell you this much, you're not coming near my kids. I'll make sure of it. I'll make sure of it through homeschooling. I'll make sure of it from protecting them and the relationships that they're involved in. I'll make sure of it in protecting their access with people that I don't believe they have their best interests in mind. And for anybody that thinks they can intimidate me, I've got news for you. It isn't the gender studies major that you use in order to impose the sort of laws and rules that you're looking for right now. As much as you hate to admit it, it's people like me. I'm the guy that you use to enforce rules and laws and regulations. It's guys like me that get called. It's not guys like you. It isn't. And so if you ever think you're going to intimidate me to somehow convince me that I shouldn't be fully invested in protecting my child spiritually, emotionally, and physically, I got news for you. There's no one you can call to stop me. No one. Period. The end. Now, we said we were going to talk about a different type of grooming because like we've said, we're trying to be intellectually honest and consistent here. I do not believe that everybody that is associated with this ideology, because I think that's what it is, ideology, is interested in hurting kids. I believe that there's people associated with this ideology that genuinely want to protect kids, even though we may disagree on the best way to do that. Right? So I believe that there are people that are reasonable, that are good faith actors, that we may disagree on various aspects of this who don't fall into the category of what I believe Jeffrey March falls under, which is someone that is attempting to groom children. But that doesn't mean that grooming isn't taking place. It's just a different sort. And that's where we get into the whole concept of what they call cult grooming or potentially ideological grooming. So let's look at this article right here. This is with um, James Lindsay. It's one at the very end there. James Lindsay is such a character. And, and James, look, can I just say right now, there's a lot of things with James Lindsay I don't agree with, right? Again, this is one of the things that we try you to emphasize. You mean you don't agree with him theologically? No. <laughs> this is one of the things that we always try to point out on this show is that I have people that I disagree with on some things that I can't agree with on other things. What I'm looking for is for you to be reasonable. I'm looking for there to be some sort of construct for which we can both work on in order to arrive at truth. Oh, it, it, and, and if you believe in a process where we can do that, then I'm, I'm happy to sit down. And even if we disagree, I'm happy to have a, a peaceful discussion. Not to, not to mention, I'm happy to use my power within the legislature to allow you to live out your life the way you want, even if I disagree with your decisions. Again, provided you don't infringe on the rights and liberties of other people to do the same thing. Like I'm, I'm committed to that. 
as, as a underlying foundational agreement to civil society. So, it's a shame that, that we don't have more people that do agree with that. But I, I, I'll say this about Lindsey. Um, he actually kind of first emerged in the public limelight when he did the um, grievances studies scandal where he, he took, he literally took, he and a couple other professors, he was big into academia for a very long time. Also very far on the left. He was like a militant atheist for a long time. Um, Lindsay took, because he worked in the university system and he saw that all these grievance departments like gender studies and queer yeah. studies and, and, and all, everything that had the word studies at the end of it was nonsense. And so he literally took a chapter from Mein Kampf yeah. and rewrote it to talk about intersectional feminism and then submitted it to a peer-reviewed journal within these one of these grievance studies um, yeah. fields. They accepted it. Yeah. And he did it to prove a point. He, and then and then he blew the whistle on, by the way, here's this was not an original work. Here's where this came from. And you just accepted and published this. Yeah. And that created a, this was six or seven years ago when this happened. Oh yeah, it created a firestorm. That's what made him famous in the beginning. And then he had, I, that, what, what happened was is that that triggered a series of events that led to him having this political transition where he went from being this like, again, like militant atheist, edgy left-wing college professor type guy to, I mean, like adamantly calling himself like an anti-communist now. Yeah. And yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to give the backstory so, so behind the, him. Yeah, so he he was asked because he was like banned from Twitter because he said, okay, groomer, right? Like he, he started to use that term grooming and they basically saw all these things from the ADL. You saw these things from Twitter. So all these organizations coming out, but basically this was a bigoted slur directed at the broader LGBTQ community, right? That was the accusation. Now, did some people use it as a slur? Yes. Did other people use it? as a genuine concern or question based off of some of the behaviors that were taking place to include some of the things that were taking place in our public schools. Absolutely. Right. But there was no distinction made. And so Lindsay came on and he clarified. Now, again, regardless of what you think of Lindsay or uh, Lindsay, and there's some things I agree with him on, some things I disagree with him on. He goes, the thing people think I am accusing them of is predatory pedo pedophilia grooming. The idea that adults are going to seduce children into sexual relationships. And that definition of grooming has a lot of currency and a lot of people recognize it. But as it turns out, we've all collectively forgotten that cult grooming was something that we all talked about up until this controversy about LGBTQ activism erupted. The phrase groomer recently has become popular online to describe the hordes of leftist activists bent on indoctrinating children into radical gender ideology. Oftentimes there is a confluence between those activists and members of the LGBT movement. They're doing their cult grooming on topics relevant to sex, gender, and sexuality, Lindsay said. They're bringing up sexual topics with children, normalizing discussions of sex with children, telling children to hide it from their parents. These are all behaviors that if it was, was predatory pedophiles, we would immediately apply the word groomer, but they're doing it for cult purposes using the same subjects. Lindsay's criticism has made him a frequent target of leftist rage. Okay, so here's the part that I kind of want to discuss with the audience, and this is the part where, look, we're going to need your questions, we're going to need your comments, we're going to need all of that to go through, because this is the important distinction that I think needs to be made. As I said earlier, I do not believe that everybody that subscribes to this ideology, the sexual identity ideology, um, is doing so because they have any ill intent toward children. 
or, or because they're trying to sexually groom children. I do not believe that that is the motivation of all or even most of the people within that. I do believe that people that have that motivation could very conveniently use the mechanisms, tools, and everything else within that movement in order to achieve it, but you could accuse the same thing to some degree of, of other areas as well where it gives you access to the youth. What's unique about this is that even if, even if a predator wants to work in the church or wants to work in Little League or wants to work as a basketball uh, coach— there's no real reason to be having deep sexual conversations in any of those different fields. It's in this one that all of a sudden sexual expression, identity has become the norm and the topic of conversation, which if you can't see a, a, a mechanism for someone to be able to exploit that for nefarious purposes, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Secondly, it's this idea that a lot of the, let, let's say that the, um, let's say that the end result of all of this is not to groom children for sexual exploitations, but rather to get children comfortable with a completely new way of viewing human sexuality. All right. Well, okay. What would you do in order to do that? Well, the method seems to be you're bringing public awareness. You're doing a lot of stuff where, um, institutions of authority within the state, within the private sector are all elevating a, a new narrative with respect to what human sexuality looks like and how it's defined. Um, as a result of that, well then of course, if you subscribe to this and if you, if you believe it, it's the moral equivalent and it's perfectly fine and it's all good. Well then yes, you would want children to believe that because for, for now it's, it's no longer a question about sexuality or a question about things that could be potentially inappropriate. This is just now a question of general societal norms, human biology, Right, That's the argument that's being made, is that in, in order to prevent marginalized populations from being marginalized, well, then, of course, you have to educate the population to include children to believe that the marginalization of these sort of activities or identification is wrong. Are you telling me that Gramsci actually predicted this? So Nick, um, no, well, but there's a question saying, can you— Clarify cult grooming. So cult grooming is the idea that you're not actually grooming someone for uh, sexual exploitation, but you're grooming them to for some other purpose. And, and usually when we talk about cult, it's, uh, it's obedience to the leader. So essentially what you're doing is in many cases within cults, you generally have a leader which um, is kind of, for lack of a better term, worshipped by the cult. It doesn't have to be that way, but it usually manifests itself in that way. And then what happens is over time, you are isolated from all the people that would distract you from the, the cult leadership or cult identity to include your own individual identity, right? Your individual identity isn't held up as you being a unique human being with characteristics or with um, dreams, goals, passions, and ideas. Those all have to be, you know, torn away so you can be subservient to the goals of the group or the goals of the cult, right? So... Now, people could look at this and, and you could look at a lot of things and say, oh, okay, does that make the military a cult because they teach you that you got to operate as a team and you got, you know, a, a, a particular mission objective? Well, no, the, the difference tends to be, the difference tends to rely on whether or not something is based on the truth or not. So obviously, if you're going to work together toward, you know, a, a goal on a football team and the goal is to score goals, then you got to work together as a team to do that. And you can't be so individually focused that you ignore what's important to others, right? This is why it becomes so easy to convince people that, that positive attributes, positive attributes in one field are now positive attributes in a different field toward a different purpose. And that's why the purpose is so important. What are you actually trying to achieve? 
um, if you wanted to look also in in cult type of of scenarios, there is sort of this cancellation process. Uh, somebody who maybe has suddenly recognize that they're in a cult and they want to try to alert people to get out of the cult. Yeah. Um, Scientology has a term for it. I finally found it. It's called a suppressive person. Yeah. Um, and everyone is to ostracize and turn their backs on the suppressive person that's trying to pull other people out. Or uh, a suppressive person could also be somebody that's on the outside of the cult, like your parent trying to draw you back out of the cult. Um, and, like these people, I, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with Scientology. They have uh, their hooks in just about every aspect of life, and they can really tweak the system to come against you. And, I mean, that's one of our modern-day cults. Well, what, what it's just reasons? another word for canceling. Well, what, what, well but here, here's the okay, but here's the difference. And but this they is, demonize one person and, and make that person the target of their... Yeah, when, and when you get canceled. So here's an example. Lindsay was literally canceled, figuratively and literally. He was banned mm -hmm. from Twitter. What, why was he banned from Twitter? Because he used certain phrases that the left decided were evil buzzwords that would... would it, here's the thing. He Anything is too, that would help pull anyone out of yes, the delusion. Think about... You, you know that you're actually speaking the truth when the left's reaction is to physically shut you down from certain platforms. Look at how they treated Jordan Peterson. Look at how they treated James Lindsay. Look yeah. at... As much as I don't like the guy, look at how they treated Andrew Tate. And that, that's one of the reasons Look at how why they treated Donald Trump. That, the, the that's reason, the reason I brought that up. The is, reason that they're doing this type of stuff is because these type of people, all of them are not perfect people. Definitely not perfect people, right? But these type of people are all saying to varying different degrees something that is true that is also inconvenient to the left's narrative in their quest to create more oppressed people that identify as part of the oppressed class. And that's threatening. Well, because sure, if somebody, here's the thing, think, think about this, somebody that's young, especially somebody that, that's, that's young and male, if they're listening to Peterson or Lindsay or God forbid, Andrew Tate or Donald Trump, they're probably not going to be going along with the intersectional feminism and LGBTQ <laughs> stuff, right? And the left needs them to go along with that type of stuff in order for them to either convert to it or become an ally. And if they're not going to become either of those two things, they're the enemy to the left. They're, it, 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 it's the same reason why I, I, I call this identity Marxism or Leninism for a reason. It's the same reason why when the Russian Revolution took place, the, the, the Bolsheviks did not waste their time trying to appeal to the Kulaks. They liquidated the Kulaks. And the reason why was because the Kulaks were considered class enemies. Didn't matter. It didn't even matter if somebody who, who fell within the Kulak class was even remotely interested in socialism. They could not be trusted because under the old system, they did pretty well. They were, they were living a middle-class existence. Therefore, they had no ingrained loyalty to the new revolution, the new state that was being constructed. They needed to be liquidated. The same thing is being done to anybody that has even a chance of not falling into this black hole the, the, this leftist black hole of all these different things that are circling around the gender stuff, the LGBT stuff, the race stuff, the, 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 the traditional Marxism stuff, because if they're not going to be part of the group, they're the, they're the class enemies, except it's no longer class. It's now identity. They're the identity enemies. Well, and I think and the speakers of those, I'll end with this, the speakers of those identity enemies, the James Lindsay's of the world, the Jordan Peterson's of the world, the Donald Trump's of the world, the Andrew Tate's of the world, the Elon Musk's of the world, those type of people the mouthpieces of of that they've got to be removed from the picture because they're speaking to creating more 
identity well, well, the, enemies. The que- so here's sorry. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to look at okay, but the left can respond to this and be like, well, wait a second, wait a second. You guys believe in freedom of association. You guys all cheered when when Bud Light took a huge dip in the stocks, when Target t- t- took a huge dip in the That was a form of canceling. That was a form of ostracizing. Why is it okay when the right does it, but it's not okay when the left does it? And this is an important question because a lot of people on the right get confronted with this and they don't know how to respond. Well, here's the difference. Here's how you respond because we're right and you're evil. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that, that's how you respond. No, 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 no. Christian listen, will be listen. playing the role of Tina today. Well, <laughs> no, listen. It, it's it's not. I, I no. It, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. We're moving in that direction, Nick. What's you know in, we are. What's important? Well, again, so you know what the left's response to that was? Wow, that sounds a whole like what you just described, but in reverse. You're right. The left believes that they're right, and you're evil. So what are you guys even complaining about? This is just a contest of who's going to win. Right. And, and, the, and the whole thing that we've been kind of fighting for is this idea that do we really want to get to the contest where the, the way that we decide who wins is who's left? Is that it? That's not my objective. Because, again, my faith informs a worldview which says that all of these people that I'm talking about that I vehemently disagree with are, are not in and of themselves the, the evil party. They may be doing things that I consider to be evil. But ultimately, that person's still beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of God. They may have fallen captive to an ideology which I believe is is horrible and is destructive not only for the people that are affected by it that they're trying to influence, but them themselves. And so, no, I don't want this to be the last man standing contest between us and them. I want to be able to point towards something that is true, and I think that's I think that is what ultimately differentiates these things, is that that ultimately this is is what we might call an epistemological question. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do you know what you know? And see, for for a long time, at least in the West, the way we knew what we knew, predominantly, the predominant view within culture was we knew what we knew because there was a God, and that God did give us a created order, and that did give us God did give us moral objectivity. And, and stemming from that was not mysticism, but logic and reason and the scientific method, a process whereby we could use the tools that had been given to us within creation to better understand not only creation, but the creator himself. Then that all of that is critical. And what I see going on right now, and what I see really going on right now, ultimately, and, and look, some of our viewers might get upset with this. Sorry, it's what I believe, is that this really all stems back to one question. Did God really say? Which is the first time God was ever challenged in Scripture other than the fall. It was the whole idea of in the garden, did God really say, don't you understand, if you eat of the apple, you will gain the knowledge of good and evil and you will become like God. And if you look at what we're looking at right now, it seems to be this extreme form of humanism where it's this idea that I'm going to give you an ideology and that ideology is going to completely free you to every form of sexual expression that your heart could desire. This is a form of hedonism. And for those, for those that look at it as a methodism for hedonism and this Nietzsche, Nietzsche spelled this out. Nietzsche spelled this out because there's two directions you can go when God is dead. You can go the way of power or you can go the way of pleasure. And I think there's some people that say, I don't want to choose. I want it both. I think that we need to be going to the uh, serpent and ask for a refund. 
because clearly a lot of people cannot differentiate between good and evil. That's okay. He'll end up paying, so no problem. Well, but the the, the, the point the point you, is you had a question you were trying to answer though before this spiraled into this, and that was. But the right cancels people. The right boycotts people. And, and what is, is your answer to that? What, what, I, what that. I come what I come back to is what all of this is about. Is that like we talk about liberty? I talk about liberty a lot. I think liberty is important, but liberty to what purpose? Please understand, liberty is not my end state. Liberty may be a portion of my end state within my activity within politics, which is to say that I don't want an oppressive government trying to compel people or coerce people to do things. But liberty is not the ultimate end state. The ultimate end state is truth. What is true? And how do we arrive at truth? That's why I say this is ultimately an epistemological question. Christianity says that the answer to that, the answer to the truth, is found within Scripture. It's found within Christ. All right? Marxism says it's found within class struggle. It, it's found within, it's found within the, um, uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Critical theory when it comes to things like race is it's found within race and the oppressor versus oppressed dynamic and the oppressors essentially rise or the oppressed essentially rising up and no longer being oppressed. Sexual identity says it comes with this kind of form of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where your, your sexual identity is the key and the component of your, your self-actualization. So all of this comes down to a question of what is true and how do you know? And what we're engaged in right now is, I think, an experiment that hasn't taken place in a long time within Western civilization because for several centuries now in Western civilization, we thought that foundational question had largely been answered. And it was answered in the establishment of Judeo-Christian values with respect to the establishment of objective morality, but also objective reality itself, not just moral reality, but reality. And then the question became, well, okay, if we know that people are some, if we know that people have a sinful nature, if we know that we're not perfectible simply through human institutions, if we know that, you know, people will make flaws and will make bad decisions, and if we know that the people that we select for our political leadership are are drawn from the same human gene pool as everybody else, then we better be careful on how much power we give them. Ah, uh, the good old Bastiat quote, right? If, they, if people they, they believe be, they're made of finer clay than the rest yeah, of us. Yeah, if people cannot be trusted with freedom, well, then how can a small subgroup, subset of people be trusted with absolute power? And this is, this is the struggle that we've been having politically and socially and economically and everything else. And, and one of the things that we have repeatedly found throughout time is that if you do have a system of government where you, you respect that, that the laws that you make do not make something moral or immoral, but really what you're actually searching for is an objective morality and then that your laws are supposed to reflect that. If you have economic systems which understand that people are self-interested, and so if you allow them to be able to use the, the skills and the desires and the ambitions that they have within a marketplace where other people are able to use that as well in order to cooperate as well as compete, but then you have limitations on how far that go. You can't use coercion. We tend to find better results. I've got the um. The, the, this this tends to be the art. This is ultimately an argument. This is ultimately a battle about truth and from whence it is derived. Yes, I've got the um the full Bastiat quote here that I I, I definitely want to read off because it's just such a good one. Anytime that I get an opportunity to read off a Bastiat or Thomas Sowell quote, I'm going to take it. Um, Bastiat says, "If the natural tendencies of mankind are so bad that it is not safe to permit people to be free, how is it that the tendencies of these organizers are always good?" Do not the legislators and their appointed agents also belong to the human race? 
Or do they believe that they themselves are made of some finer clay than the rest of mankind? Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's where we're... The, he encapsulates the, it so perfectly. Because that, that is ultimately one of the struggles that we're involved in right now. And as I look at this ideology, right? As I look at this ideology, and you can call it rooted in critical theory, but obviously it has a lot of branches. It does seem to be this idea that the, the way that we're going to achieve an ideal state, let's call it that way. The way we're going to achieve an ideal state in, in the, the view of critical theory is that essentially when the, when the marginalized groups, when the oppressed groups actually attain sufficient political, economic, and social power, they will be able to achieve an egalitarian society where you have general equality across the board, where everybody is no longer deprived of core essentials of life and are able to pursue their various desires but, but a large part of what they demand for that is group identity. And what a large part of what they demand for that is, quote, group rights, which really can't exist. Group rights over individual rights. You, you will give up your individual identity in so many ways that it's actually meaningful. And then they'll try to supplant that with these. So, well, you can claim to be whatever you want, but you are going to eventually work for the betterment of the group and the state. And so the, the truth, the, the combating truth with this, and this is, I mean, never forget, this is truth claims, right? We have truth claims taking place. The truth claim that we're espousing on, on this channel, the truth claim that we're espousing, it is, is rooted in a Judeo-Christian philosophy that there is a God, there is objective morality, there is objective reality, and that there are certain things which work and don't work, which have both practical uses as well as moral uses. There's a practical and a moral component. Right, we we don't worship free market economics simply because it creates greater wealth. If if greater wealth was the really? only objective, I mean, I do. If but. greater wealth was the only objective, <laughs> well, then you could go rob a bank and you would have greater wealth. The problem is, is you would have violated a moral principle in order to do so. So so what what allows you what allows you within again within our truth claim what we're saying is it's true that people have self interest. It's true that there's limited resources. It's true that that people should be able to work together in order to improve their lot in life. Okay, well, what's the best way to do that without violating any moral principles of, of coercion and violence and taking things from other Pillage people? Pillage their lands and take their stuff. No. That used, to be, not, that <laughs> used to be the law of conquest, right? Yeah. Well, again, I, I feel like we're being confronted with an alternative truth. And because they believe it's an alternative truth, right? This goes back to Gramsci, right? This doesn't mean that everybody involved in this has the same sort of Marxist objective that, that Gramsci did when he talked about- oh, A lot of people pushing this don't even know who Gramsci well, is. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm not yeah. saying they have the same objectives, but what I'm saying is what Gramsci talked about with, within you know Marxist culture was the idea that you had to create a competitive narr competing narrative with the dominant culture in order to potentially overthrow it. You couldn't just do it by relying on the workers of the world to unite, along their economic status, especially in an economic system which allows for great upward economic mobility. You had to replace the current order with a new one. And in order to do that, you had to replace the current culture with a new culture. You had to replace the old religion with a new religion. right? You had to, you had to come up with competing theories of what truth constituted. And therefore, the revolution and the vanguard will not be built around class structure. It will be built around other identities. This is why I keep referring to it as identity-based Marxism yeah. or identity-based Leninism rather than classical Marxism or classical Leninism. I mean, there's another term that they use a lot on the internet where they call it bio-Leninism, but I like identity more. Yeah. Is, I, I think I think that it's it's that's a more accurate depiction of, of what's going on because... The bio component implies that there's something biological about it, but there can be things 
that are identity-based that are not biological, for example. The trans stuff, that's not biological. I mean, by definition, it's not biological. Again, what is a woman, right? So I I think that calling it identity Marxism or identity Leninism is is a better terminology. But that's just more splitting hairs. The, the, The fact is, is that in the West, because free markets work and because capitalism works, you're never going to get a revolution of the proletariat because the proletariat is not going to be the proletariat is going to be the bourgeoisie tomorrow. Yeah. So how do you how do you achieve a revolution then? Well, it's not going to be along class lines. It's going to be along race, gender, you know, intersectionality, LGBTQ, all of that type of stuff. Like sexuality, all of this stuff. And you're gonna you're gonna go to people that historically were marginalized because they practiced certain social behaviors that that did not equate to status and power, and they're gonna offer those people status and power. And there's not enough of them to have a majority though in a democratic system. So you need to make more of them. No, I, and I, I, I keep stressing that you need to make more of them. Everybody wonders why is this stuff popping up seemingly overnight? It's not a conspiracy. It's an organic process. And that organic process, there, there is power to be had. And if there's power to be had, somebody is going to find a way to obtain it. And it's, it's, it's a natural consequence of, think of it as, as energy, right? You know, everything wants to fall to its lowest state possible. And it will find a way to do so, right? This, this is why a ball sitting at the top of the hill, you, you just tip it over and it'll roll down. That's not a conspiracy. It's gravity, Yeah. right? And Likewise, there's power to be had and somebody some way will find a way to obtain it. This is this is honestly why I think that that our founding fathers talked about so often in the Constitutional Convention and in the debates over the the um, Bill of Rights that that democracies have a very long track record of killing themselves. Well, I I think there's to to sum up a lot of what we've talked about today. And we've made a distinction. We've made a distinction between grooming, which is specifically motivated toward targeting your child, and how do you actually prevent that, and what are the signs that you can see. And then we've also talked about some of the similarities between that sort of grooming and cult grooming. And then I think what we're seeing right now is is this this ideological push, which essentially desires to create a counter narrative to the one that the United States ha- has essentially existed upon. Doesn't mean we've always perfectly applied it. I mean, clearly we have not perfectly applied the the founding principles that were articulated in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Clearly, we have not done that. But those were still considered guiding factors. And now what we're doing is we're seeking to replace those guiding factors. The ideas of, of individual liberty, personal responsibility, um, you know, belief in, in, in God. And we're replacing these now with different, um, different ideologies, different notions of, of what constitutes the good. So the, the question that we have to ask ourselves as we go through this process is one of the fatal flaws of Marxism is that because it came out with objective criteria by which it could be judged, it was flawed because it was flawed as its foundational reason. Its foundational reasoning was the idea that capitalism was essentially used to oppress the workers and that communism would arise in those societies where the workers essentially got tired of being exploited and then they would you know, join together and overthrow and create the dictatorship of the proletariat. All right, but think about this for a second. Within that philosophy, he actually sowed the seeds for its own destruction. Because one of the things he doesn't take into account is that why is it that it was in cultures that had actually embraced capitalism that they were the least likely to transfer over to communism? 
it, it was in the classes that were still heavily feudalistic or still heavily like peasant based or hadn't provided any sort of, you know, power to marginalize groups. Those are the ones that were more likely to adopt communism. It wasn't the ones that were more capitalist or free market oriented. He was wrong. What was he also wrong? Well, he was wrong on this idea that people would flourish economically within a socialist system versus a free market system. What did we find? We find that far more wealth was attained by the very people Marx cared, claimed to care about within the capitalist system, within the Marxist system. So all within traditional Marxism, you have this series of objective criteria by which Marxism can be judged and by which it fails. But this new class of ideology, what are the objective systems by which it's judged? In fact, if, you, were, in fact, if you rely upon, no, 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 not even that. If you rely upon an objective criteria to judge something, you're told you're bigoted, you're racist, you're sexist. You don't understand. That's an old way. To, in fact, logic, linear thinking, the scientific method, these are all devices that have been created by a white oppressor class. And if you utilize them over the new preferred things of like narrative, well, then you're simply embracing the oppressor class that they're trying to overthrow. Any sort of critique is used as evidence of your lack of understanding and opposition to what they want to be the dominant worldview. They do not allow themselves to be critiqued. You want to find a common trait in pretty much every cult out there. It's its unwillingness to allow for any sort of challenge based off of objective criteria. The leader's word rules, period, the end. And so the biggest thing that I see going on right now in this fight that's taking place is not purely that I, I think it produces bad results, but they are deliberately setting themselves up within it. Their ideologies deliberately set itself up to where it cannot be challenged. It won't allow itself to be challenged. Again, challenging it is in and of itself evidence that it's right and you're wrong. That's circular in nature. So the question is, is with, with things like this gender identity, does the man ever become a woman biologically? No, never. I don't care how many drugs you throw out. I don't care how many surgeries that never does the man become the woman or the woman become the man. So what do they do? Well, they sense to change the definitions of the words themselves. Any sort of ideology, which runs that headlong in opposition with physical reality is one that simply cannot sustain itself and will always eventually rely upon violence in order to achieve its end state. That's, that's where uh, to be completely honest, that's that, that's where it's going to end. We've talked about it before. I mean, I this is the black pill moment, but like we've talked about it before, right? You know, the why the dollar will collapse, all that. I mean, all of that previous stuff. We're 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 heading towards a um a confrontation, one that I don't think the vast majority of people necessarily wanted. Um, but it, it's it's it, I feel like it's pretty obvious because you've you've got two competing worldviews that that are just diametrically opposed to each other and. And one wants to impose itself on the other. The other is that the, the side that, that wants to win will always beat the side that wants to be left alone. But the problem is, is that the side that wants to be left alone are the ones that actually have the ability, if they wanted to, to impose their will on the side that wants to win. The side that wants to win has social anxiety leaving their house. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we all we all saw. The, I say this from from personal experience, having social anxiety leaving my no, house. We, although we, I don't fall under the law. We also we all saw the little collectivist meeting that they had. I think in San Francisco, yeah. where they kept getting Please. up one personal point of personal privilege after the next, talking about don't wave your hands and don't do this and stop using gendered terminology by saying hey guys. They're gonna fold like a deck of cards when we get when we finally get get past the point where where you know, voting is, is universally, you know, accepted as not fixing the problem through whatever means. I think it'll be through, through an economic catastrophe down the road involving hyperinflation or, or the destruction of the dollar MMT going to its logical conclusion, that type of stuff. But, but regardless of how we get there, and I do think we are going to get there eventually. I just don't know when I'm like Bismarck trying to make a prediction, but you know, I can't tell you when, but I yeah. can tell you where some damn yeah. foolish thing in the Balkans. Well, <laughs> like I, I mean, yeah, I, I can't tell you when, but I can tell you how it, how it'll end, and it it it'll ultimately end when eventually the right will will have enough of this, and and they will they will say enough, and they will win eventually. The question is, what type of right will win? We've talked about this before with the right wing backlash. I know that we had an episode that we've floated ourselves. Nick and Hamilton and I got together, and we we throughout some some future episodes and, and one topic that I came up with was um, the two maybe three paths that the right can take over the next 10 or 20 years mm-hmm. and I'm not going to necessarily spoil the premise of that episode because I think at some point we'll do it but um, there's 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 different approaches that we can take to it and I know that everybody at this table wants one that's going to you know restore federalism preserve you know property rights preserve the capitalist system preserve the family structure but increasingly i see people on the right that are like no you know they the these you know these people on the left have you know started the fire and and now they're going to get burned yeah well so, let's uh, all right so what gonna, can you do so here we go here here we go right here it comes it comes down to it it's two two main things we talked about today the first one i i want to make sure that everyone understands is the reason why we talked about um, the, the nature of grooming and how your kids get targeted is because we wanted you to understand both the physical threat to them as well as the ideological threat to them, the psychological threat to them. Because all, all of the physical abuse usually starts first with some sort of psychological connection or isolation from the parents. And, and you need to be wary of that. Um, again, I think one of the most important things uh, Jack Reynolds said was that he said even before he looks at the children, he looks at the family structure. Um, the family has been under attack in the United States for a long time by a lot of people in, in, in popular sociology departments believing that the, the family of a, of a husband and a wife, of a mother and a father, that that's not really necessary to civilization. Um, I, I'm sorry, I think that's garbage. And one of the areas that we have proven is, is having a strong father that a predator sees as a potential threat is the number one deterrent. And so dads, you have to not only be a threat, you have to also be present in your child's life. And, and that whole concept of understanding what it means to be able to provide and protect your family, to take that role very, very seriously, means that you're going to have to develop certain capabilities that are necessary for you to have. You develop the capabilities at the same time that you develop the worldview and the philosophy which teaches you how to use those capabilities in service to the people that you love. That's, that's step one. Step two was talking about this whole critique that conservatives are now getting overwhelmingly that the moment we say groomers, and again, we should use the term appropriately. We shouldn't use it inappropriately. But when we use that term automatically, we're accused once again of being bigots, of being sexist, of being racist. Here's all I can tell you. I, I'm, I don't care that they call me that anymore. 
because they, they've, they've used the term so inappropriately and, and without any sort of standard or objective definition over time to where it's become meaningless. And you need to understand what it really represents. And I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read off a, a quote here um, because I think it's, it's, it's important. This comes from Theodore Dalrymple. He goes, in my studies of communist societies, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince, not to inform, but to humiliate. And therefore, the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. To assent to obvious lies is, in some small way, to become evil oneself. One's standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. A variety of emasculated liars is easy to control. I think if you examine political correctness, it has the same effect and is intended to. I believe that is absolutely correct. So now more than ever, it is essential that we live not by lies, but that we understand how to argue for the truth. Because what's going on here is not simply grooming from a sexual standpoint. It's not even cult grooming in, in isolation. It's an ideological grooming, which is sense to hold up a different worldview and a different perspective on truth than one we have ever lived on in our lifetimes. It has regularly been accepted in the societies that we've grown up in that there is such a thing as God, as objective reality, as objective moral reality, that there are processes and mechanisms that we can use, that all of us can use, regardless of what you believe, to arrive at the truth. And that when you posit a theory about the truth, about reality, about morality, that it can be tested by others using similar processes. And we're now being told that that's off limits. I'm sorry, but anybody that tells you that it is completely off limits for them to be challenged because of your skin color, because of your race, because of your sex, those aren't the good guys in society. They just aren't. Historically, it has been demonstrated over and over again that people that will deny the existence of truth or attempt to replace it with some facsimile which makes no sense and which cannot be challenged ultimately resort to violence in order to achieve their end state. And while it is impossible to ignore the political, you have to be involved in it, while we still have peaceful means in order to protect the rights that we enjoy, you're going to need to do that. But you're also going to need to make sure that you possess the ability spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and physically to be able to defend and stand up for what you believe and what you love. Because there's a lot of people that will be relying on you to do it. If you're sitting around waiting for someone else to be the one that will save you, you're going to fail. And you're not just going to fail yourself. You're going to fail the people you care most about. But the good news is, is becoming those things is working on making yourself spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and physically formidable, has positive effects should the day ever come when you really need to use those things in a scenario that I hope none of us want to actually see. But in the meantime, it will help fight to preserve the sort of society I think that we all deep down believe in and want to see continue. Thank you very much for joining us today, for spending your time with us. Please let us know any questions that you have. Also consider joining our group on Circle. Again, this is one of those episodes that we ran through our community before we decided to publish it because we wanted to see what sort of interest was there. We hope we delivered on our uh, promise to you for this episode and what it would equip you to do, both intellectually 
um, spiritually, etc. Uh, again, please join that group. Help us make this show better. Help us make sure that we're producing something that you actually find value because we never want this to be something where it's just four people sitting around a table. We want it to be something that you can actually use and that actually um, makes your lives better. So once again, thank you very much. God bless. We'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.